0: Thank you to the band for leading us, as always. Just amazing to be able to sit under those songs and sing together and reflect on those truths. So thanks to the band, uh, I'm excited to be up here, excited to preach again. And like Josh said, I'm going to be continuing our series on the Jesus's letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. So I have the second to last letter, the letter to the believers in the city of Philadelphia. So this is not Ben Franklin, Philadelphia. This is the ancient city, Philadelphia, in modern-day Turkey, just close to all the other cities we've been talking about. So I'm just going to get right into it. Um, We're going to be in Revelation 3. It's verses 7 through 13. So I'm going to go ahead and read that for us. Verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, Who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, who comes, which comes down from my God, out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, a very full letter, uh, lots of imagery, just like we've seen in all the other letters, uh, a lot of encouragement to these people that were believers in the city of Philadelphia. So we're gonna, this is going to flow just like uh, the other sermons in this series. We've broken it up into a consistent structure because that's the way that Jesus has composed these messages. Uh, we're going to talk about who it's to, who it's from, uh, Christ's evaluation of these people, both good and bad, uh, his exhortation to them, and his promises to them. So we'll start by talking about who the letter is to. And we've already said it's to the believers in the city of Philadelphia. But there are some things about Philadelphia that are important for us to know so we can properly interpret the letter. So I want to give you some historical context. Um, First of all, Philadelphia was a fortress city. So you can imagine a lot of strong public buildings, strong architecture, Uh, very protected. You can think about uh, fortified city walls. Um, It was a strategic fortress city in the empire. Uh, And that's extra significant because, just like Josh referenced last week when he was talking about the letter to Sardis, in AD 17, there was a major earthquake in the region. And this region is no stranger to earthquakes. There's often there was often tremors, and smaller earthquakes, but there was a devastating earthquake in AD 17 that did significant damage to the city of Philadelphia. Um, so you can imagine, especially for a fortress city, not only uh, are there houses crumbling and falling and just general infrastructure, but all of the protection that the city had built up uh, was falling and it was very dangerous. You can imagine the city walls crumbling. The sense of security that the empire had built into the city was threatened and it was destroyed. So you, you can imagine that in the minds of the Philadelphian people, there was always a fear of instability, a fear of another disaster coming. They were often going outside of the city walls to live in rural areas just to escape the threat of another earthquake or the tremors that came with that. So they were being forced outside of the city for their own safety, and it was, this was this had to always be in the back of their minds, the threat of natural disaster via an earthquake. So after that major earthquake in AD 17, imperial aid was sent to reconstruct the city. So it had to do, I'm sure, with the strategic nature of the city, and it was a fortress city, but also the generosity of Caesar at the time. So with that, the city somehow decided to rename itself or was renamed to Neo-Caesarea. Neo-Caesarea just meaning the new city of Caesar. So after it was rebuilt, they paid tribute to the emperor who was basically like a deity in the culture. So they changed the city's name. Something else happened not too long after, and they started calling the city Flavia after another emperor. And then there were multiple times after that even where the city became known as different things as a tribute to the people who had either helped them or just some kind of indirect worship in that way, I would say. So... It was always known as Philadelphia, but there were these names that it would get for tributes. And that's going to be important for us. Lastly, there was suffering and persecution in Philadelphia. And you may remember when Chris preached on Smyrna, he talked about uh, Polycarp, who was a martyr, a very influential martyr. Um, These cities aren't terribly far from each other. So the believers in Philadelphia felt pain and persecution from the martyrdom of Polycarp. So there was suffering, there was persecution. It wasn't on the scale, maybe, of Smyrna, as far as its direct violence and injustice in the way that they were suffering, but there was suffering and persecution, and maybe even in more subtle ways, and we'll talk about that. But it's all these, all these small details that may seem insignificant, um, but this is going to help us interpret the latter part Of the letter, so that's who the letter is to, who it's from. Just like every other letter, is from Jesus, Uh, but he comes to them in a very personal way. I just think it's cool that all the letters are structured in the same way, and yet they're all very personal. And I think that's something that says something of Christ Himself. It's very much His personality to do something like that. Um, So, verse seven. Let's look at how Jesus describes Himself. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. The Holy One and the True One, that's very common in Revelation, a way of looking at God, that God is pure and sinless, uh, and that he is true, he is authentic, he is who he says he is, and that will be important to the Philadelphian people. And now he says, who has the key of David. Now that, that is some interesting imagery. And that's a reference to a practice in the Old Testament. And all he's really saying is that he has been given the key to the kingdom. There was a, a practice in the Old Testament where uh, a servant, a trusted servant, or someone close to the king will be given the key to the kingdom in a sense, and all that meant is that this person was made able to make binding decisions in the kingdom on behalf of the king. So he's able to make binding decisions. And the key of David David always referencing the messianic family line. So Christ is the Messiah. And in the sense that he's saying, the key, the key of David, he's saying, I am the Messiah and I have authority to make decisions about the kingdom of God. That's all he's saying. So then he goes on to say, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So again, talking about his authority, his decisions are binding. No one can reverse what Christ's decisions are. No one can undo what he does, since he is the ultimate authority. He is the Messiah. So, We can say that generally. Any of his decisions are binding. But you notice he's using a lot of imagery of doors. So in particular, he's talking about uh, the doors to the kingdom. He has the authority to open the door to the kingdom to people. And he has the ability to shut it to people. So he is saying, I am the gatekeeper of the kingdom in a sense. I admit people into the kingdom and I shut the door to people. I am the authority Uh, I'm the doorway to the kingdom of God in a sense I control that so this is how he comes to the people of Philadelphia and it's going to make sense why this would mean so much to them Uh, we'll move on now to his evaluation of the church and look at verses 8 through 10 starting with verse 8 I know your works Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know your works, he says, and we've seen that in this series so far. He's saying, I know intimately what's going on with you. I am close to you. I am not far away. No one is sending him occasional status updates from the church. He is walking with them, he is walking among them intimately. I know your works. And then he says, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. So we go back and think about verse 7. He's saying, I have authority to open and shut the door of the kingdom. And he's saying, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I am welcoming you into the kingdom. This is the beginning of his endorsement of them, of his encouragement of how well they are abiding with him. So he's, he's saying, I have set the door open and I am the authority So that's big. That's big for them. Continuing in verse 8. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So little power. We can think again back to the people in Smyrna. It's similar. They were poor. They were weak. um, But especially in Philadelphia, they were small in number. One commentator has said that we, you know, it's easy for us to read these letters and think of just vast churches, vast groups of Christians, but one commentator says, think about it like maybe this is a few dozen believers, just a few dozen believers that Christ is giving this message to. And I think that helps us to see the scope of this. He is intimately involved in this city, even with what could possibly be just a dozen believers. I think that's, that says something of his character and his love. And you have kept my word and not denied my name. They've been faithful. This is his positive endorsement and encouragement of how they've been living. And when he says, you have not denied my name, that is a reference to persecution. Often Christians would be questioned and forced to... Or asked to deny Jesus' name, but these believers would not do it. They would die for the name of Christ. And maybe that's why there's so few of them. But Christ knows that they have not denied his name, and they have been living faithfully. And that, that had to be an amazing endorsement from the Messiah for them. So, continuing with the evaluation in verse 9, it shifts, and this is... Very, very important to the culture of Philadelphia, what happens in verse 9. Jesus says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So, obviously there's some tension here between the Christians in Philadelphia And the Jewish population, the the practicing Jews in Philadelphia. So at least some or maybe a large part of the Jewish factions um, were very antagonistic to the Christians at the time. And I want to give some context uh, for that because this had to be just unimaginable living alongside this. Uh, At this point, Christians were no longer tolerated in the synagogues. Now, we can think, why would Christians want to be in the synagogues anyway? Don't they go to churches? But let's think back to the time period that they're in. And if we think about how Judaism and Christianity interact, I think it can help us. Um, Just thinking on the fact that Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism, that the promised Messiah the, the Messiah that God promised uh, the Israelites is Jesus Christ. So could you imagine being uh, a, just a faithful practicing Jew in Philadelphia, either encountering Jesus personally or in someone evangelizing and learning about Christ and him saving you and receiving the Holy Spirit and you start to live your life differently and freedom. And it's so real and you know that you know that you know that you are a believer and you know that Christ is real and that he fulfilled all the prophecies and he's doing things in your life and he is who he says he is. And then you go to the synagogue and you're like, well, don't you all know this? Jesus came to fulfill Judaism. This is, this is him, this is the Messiah. And then they shut the doors on you. That your whole lineage, everything you've practiced since you've been young, And you know that Christ is the Messiah. These people are rejecting him. The Jewish leadership is rejecting him. They're publicly denouncing Christians in their worship services. There was a council, and this is a historically recorded thing, a council held by the Jewish leaders at the time. Uh, And they have like, I guess it seemed like minutes from their meeting or something. And they have some recorded prayers And one of the prayers by the Jewish leaders in the region uh, mentioned things like, uh, God, would you humble the apostates? Apostate meaning someone that denies the faith. Would you humble the apostate Christians? And they say, God, will you blot the Christians' names out of the book of life? Literally, that is the kind of attitude that the leadership at the time of the synagogues and Judaism had toward Christians. So, I hope that that's clear. I hope hope we can see that these people were running up against such a dissonance with their identity, that the identity they lived with, with Judaism, Jesus came and fulfilled that, and then it's being turned down at the very places that should be theirs. The synagogue should be for the Christians in a sense because Christ has come to fulfill all of that, but it's not what's happening. So the Jews tried to shut the door to the synagogue to them, and they did. And the Jews were trying to shut the door of the kingdom to the Christians. But we have to remember what, what Jesus has promised them, and we'll come back to that. So it's in, it's in that tension that this letter comes to these people. It's in that tension that Jesus says, uh, I know your works, and I know you've been faithful. Even through this, somehow they're being faithful and that's amazing. So in the rest of verse 9, uh, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. This is um, It's obvious what's happening here, but this is also an Old Testament reference to the fact that God would tell the Jews that the Gentiles... God would tell the Israelites that the Gentiles would eventually bow to them. And now Jesus is telling the Philadelphian Christians that the, that the practicing Jews, the antagonistic Jews, will bow to them. He's reversing that. And he's saying, in a sense, you are the true Jews. You are the true fulfillment of the church through Christianity. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you're grafted in, and now you're in my family, and that's what matters. So could you imagine uh, being amidst all of this tension with the Jewish leadership and Christ saying directly to them I have opened the door to the kingdom for you and no one will shut it could you imagine how much that meant to them they were dying they were dying and they were poor and they were weak so we can move on now to verse 10 He's still evaluating things. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So, patient endurance. Uh, They're persevering. It's just what we've already been talking about. He's pleased with their perseverance. And he's going to protect them from the hour of trial. They are hidden in him. They are Christians. His righteousness is is theirs. And they will be saved from judgment. They will be saved from uh, they will be with him for eternity. And that is what he is reminding them of. He will protect them from the hour of trial. Now this is normally where I would move from the positive part of his evaluation to the negative part, but there is no negative part in the letter to the Church of Philadelphia. And I think that's a point in itself that They were persevering and amidst all this tension and they clung to Christ so tightly. So there is no warning, there is no correction. So we can move on to his exhortation, which is verse 11. I am coming soon, hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Christ is saying, I am coming soon, I am coming quickly, I am coming without delay, I am coming when the time is right. He is reminding them that he will be there with them when he returns for the second time. So he may return during their lifetime, which obviously he did not, or uh, and he will be with them in that case. Or they could live a faithful life and die and be in his presence anyway through through death so either way he is coming for them and he will be with them and he wants to remind them of that and then his exhortation is really just keep doing what you're doing hold fast what you have so no one may seize your crown continue to patiently endure continue to persevere and to just continue following me like you've been doing he is pleased with them he is happy with them he says continue on So moving on to verse 12, uh, his promise to them. He says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Now this is where some of our historical context comes in. And obviously, we can see that Jesus is talking about being in the on the new earth with these people and just them passing through the door to the kingdom and that he is fully with them, fully present on the new earth, and he is with them. Uh, but we can look at the details and see that Christ says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, what do we remember about Philadelphia is had so many earthquakes devastated by earthquakes and he's saying I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God Christ is saying you will be part of the foundational structure of my temple of life with me and that is something that will never be destroyed so he's saying I'm greater than the natural disasters that you've had to live through then what does he say never shall he go out of it talking about the temple What did they have to do? For their own safety, they had to live outside of the city in the rural areas, which possibly brought less security, possibly wasn't the home that they're used to. And Christ says, you will never have to leave my presence. You will never have to leave my temple. You will never leave the new earth with me. You are secure there with me. I am greater than you having to move out of the city out of security and residency. Then what does he say? I'll write on him God's name, the city's name, and Christ's name. So, we can think about the city's name changing. That this was a constant threat to their identity collectively, we could say. And, as a pillar in the temple of their God they will have God's name on them and it will never change nothing will ever come and destroy the temple and get foreign aid and rename the city that will never happen on the new earth they will have a permanent name they will have a permanent identity so we can look at it in that way And I think we can also apply this in some ways to the the synagogue. It may not be as strong a way of looking at it, but no one will ever kick you out of the temple again. No one will ever kick you out of the synagogue again. No one will ever threaten your identity again. And I just think it's amazing that this is exactly what they needed to hear. I don't think Jesus wastes words with these people. I think he told them exactly what they needed to hear in order for them to abide to the end. To follow him patiently, enduring until the end. So you can see the picture that Jesus is trying to paint of the new earth. He's trying to paint to them personally. It's this idea of permanence versus instability. They live lives of instability In Philadelphia, due to the earthquakes, due to the antagonistic Jews, due to all these different things, changing names, the world offers instability. Christ and new earth offer permanence and goodness that will never change. And I think that's one thing that we can latch on to. One other thing to notice, earlier in the passage he says, I know you have little power. Christ does not promise them to, that he will increase their power in the world. In a way, Jesus is okay with them having little power in the ways of the world. He is guaranteeing them stability and power in the new earth. And this is very much in the pattern of Jesus, because if you have little power in the world, that gives us more opportunity to depend on the Lord. And that is exactly what he wants them to do. So little power can be a blessing. Small numbers can be a blessing. Being poor and weak can be a blessing. And I know that's not where Jesus has everyone. But for these people, it can be a blessing. And it increased their dependence on the Lord. And he just wanted them to keep doing what they were doing. So... The very last verse, verse 13, is, you know, the common verse throughout all these letters to end with. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the people in Philadelphia had ears to hear what the Spirit said to the churches. In the first part of the 20th century, there were still five congregations going strong in the city of Philadelphia, or, you know, what that city became in that area. Still five congregations going strong. It was the only church of the seven that had that kind of longevity. I just think that's amazing. For all of those years, they were faithful, generation after generation. So that is a picture of this letter to Philadelphia. That is historical context It's what they were dealing with with the antagonistic Jews at the time. Um, And that's Jesus' promises to them. But now we can move and look at how this applies to us. What does Jesus have for us, the Ring Community Church, the people in this room, through this letter? And I think a lot of it has to do, some of it's been obvious, but a lot of it has to do, how can we patiently endure like the believers in Philadelphia. They ran the race, and they ran it well. How can we do that? How can we access that like they did? I think we need to focus on Christ's promises to them. Um, Again, the things that he said to them were exactly what they needed to be reminded of. So the big idea is this. We need to meditate, we need to be aware of We need to meditate on our guaranteed future with Christ. Notice that Christ did not give a bunch of detailed instructions of what to do in the world to them other than keep doing what you're doing. He told them about the promises that are there for them in the future. So we need to meditate on the future that Christ has guaranteed for us as believers We have to invite eternity into the way we think now, the way we think and the way we live. You notice they said, or Christ said, uh, patiently endure, and they have been patiently enduring. And I think we can be patient, and I think we can endure in a different way if we fully invite the kingdom into our minds and we fully invite what's waiting for us when Christ comes back into our minds. Uh... One illustration that comes to mind is I was, at a, I was at a friend's house the other night and as I was walking up to the door to knock on it, I could smell the dinner that they were cooking through their door very strongly. And that made me want to patiently endure the cooking process in a different way than if I had not smelled it. Does that make sense? Think about that. Think about how that can apply to the kingdom. If we are constantly pursuing the aroma of the kingdom, the kingdom here now, because Christ has brought the kingdom to us, but it's not complete yet. It's not fully here yet. This world is still broken, but it's being redeemed, and it will be fully redeemed. But if we can keep pursuing the things of the kingdom and keep getting that aroma of the kingdom, then we will be able to patiently endure in a different way because it is so close to us and is always on our minds. So I want to look at two, two of the things he said. Uh, first, the fact that he said, I am coming soon. I am coming to get you. You are guaranteed to be with me. What do those words evoke in us? Have we ever really thought about that? Have we ever really meditated on that? Do they evoke relief? Relief? Do they evoke excitement that he is coming back? Do they evoke dread for some reason? Are we unhappy about it? Do we fear it? Do we roll our eyes? And do we think, well, Lord, it'd be nice, yes, that you come back, but, you know, in a week, I'm going on vacation, and I'm very looking forward to to this time at the beach, so could you wait a week to come back? Or... I'm getting this promotion at work and it's a good thing and I just want to see what that feels like. Um, Do we get excited about those things instead of putting our excitement and putting our hope in Christ coming back and the kingdom that will be fully realized with us? Do we get caught up in the things of the world too much? Um, So it's not bad, obviously, to get excited about things that are in this world. And it has to do with, are those Christ-centered things? If you get excited about your kids and raising them well in the way of Christ, and if you get excited about marriage, and you get excited about caring for your spouse and loving for the community, and all these, all these good Christ-centered things, those are shadows of what we'll experience on the new earth that is guaranteed to us. So those are good things, and we get excited about them, but nothing should take over our hope for being face-to-face with Christ fully in his presence? Do we think about that? Do we meditate on that? Are we excited? Things here are good at times, These, the different things in our lives, but they're not complete. They're not complete yet. Things are still broken here, though he is redeeming. Uh, the second thing that he says, just all the the parts about uh, them being a pillar in the temple and that they'll never have to go out and he puts these new names on them. We have eternal acceptance with Christ. We have eternal residence with Christ. And we have eternal identity with Christ that can never be threatened. We know as believers that this world is not the end. And it can feel like those things are being threatened for us. It can feel like our identity is just being taken advantage of, is being changed. It can, it can feel like all this is happening, but the reality is as we cling to Jesus and we patiently endure, that those things can never be taken away from us after when he comes back. So we must tap into that. We must think about those things. One way to think about it is that Christians, we are always fighting from victory. There is a guaranteed victory. And when we are fighting battles, you fight in a different way if you know you are going to win. And we are going to win. We are going to win. So for many of these people, the future is all they had. You think about the lives, the difficulty of their lives, the believers in Philadelphia or Smyrna. You think about the persecuted church today in different places, everything has been taken away from them in the world. The future, the guaranteed inheritance with Christ is all they have and that's what they cling to and that's what Christ is telling these people and I think that that's what Christ is telling us. Things can get in our way of seeing this stuff. What gets in our way? What gets in your way? And what gets in my way of meditating on these things? What things that are rooted, not in Christ, but are rooted only in this world? What things of this world are we finding ourselves putting our hope in? Putting our deep hope and excitement in? The kind of things that when we do get to the new earth, they won't even be there. The things that are rooted in this world. How are we storing our treasure here rather than storing it in heaven? How can Paul say, to live as Christ and to die is gain? It's, it's an amazing passage, and we're not going to turn to it or, or put it up, but in, you may want to take it down to look at this week. But in Philippians 1, verses 19 through 26, that's where Paul says these things, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I think it would be good for us to get in Paul's head a bit, because he is talking about, how good it is to pursue Christ and do good things here, but nothing will compare to being in his presence. And there's a tension there. And I think that it can help us so much to invite that tension into our lives. Is it death or we, do we fear death? Do we, do we fear leaving this world? Christ has defeated death. Uh, there is no threat to us in this world. Only temporal things can be taken away from us. The eternal is secure. That's what the Philadelphian people here needed to hear, and I think that's what we need to hear. Where are we putting our hope in these temporal, worldly things? I want to borrow a phrase from C.S. Lewis uh, towards the end of his book, Mere Christianity. He's talking about Something different, but I really like the phrase. He talks about um, a, a fog being lifted from us. He talks about an anesthetic fog being lifted from us. Anesthetic. He says when the anesthetic fog of nature or the real world is lifted, we will see that all that's left is Christ's presence. Now, anesthetic fog, what does anesthesia do? It numbs us. It takes away our ability to sense things. C.S. Lewis is saying that this real world, the things of the world that are so easy to pursue, that so easily pursue us, and that we latch onto, they're numbing us. This world has a numbing effect on us, and then we can't see clearly. It's like we're in a fog. I know that image helped me a lot. And how easy is it for us in this fog to pursue things that aren't Christ? We have, to help him, we have to ask him to help us think correctly and to pursue the right things because when that fog lifts, he will be the only one there. When we stand before him, he will be the only one there. That's the only reality. It's all that will matter is the pursuit of him. So I think we can invite we invite all these thoughts into our normal thinking. We invite this into the way we live. We get excited for what Christ has promised us. We throw our hope there into something that cannot be taken away. And it, loo- it's help- it helps us to loosen our grip on the things of the world. Because we are in the world now for a time and we are to be a light for Christ. And we are doing that. But we can't grip too tightly to the world because the new earth is going to be our reality in the presence of Christ forever. That will be our reality. Next, uh, before, before I close, um, all this talk about doors got me thinking. Um, I'm going to turn to, or we're going to look at John chapter 10, verses 9 through 11 really quick. And it's going to be on the screen. So let me read let me read this really quick. Jesus says, "I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep." Christ opened the door to the kingdom, to the people of Philadelphia. And in this image of doors, Christ is the door to salvation. And I want that to be clear to everyone, that if, if you do not know Jesus, and this, and this is intriguing you, if, if this talk of the new earth is not something you've heard before, if, if he is pulling on you right now, know that the door to salvation is open and that he welcomes, he invites people in. And that a life of abundance and meaning and obedience and fellowship with him is available. A life that does not look like a life rooted in the world. So I want that to be clear. We're all following someone or something and Christ is available to fill that. So we've pretty much reached the end. Uh, just to summarize, just to just to close it out, um, we have got to live our lives in light of the realities that have been promised to us. We can't store up our treasure in this world. That is not what Christ is calling us to do. He's calling us to live a life step by step of obedience. With him, and to constantly look at and meditate on the promises that he's given us, and the reality of a future with him that has been won by him through his obedience, through his death and resurrection, that he has guaranteed that for us, and now we're just moving towards that, and nothing can stop us from getting there as we are obedient to him and we li- we live life with him we're inviting the kingdom in more and more, and we keep getting that aroma, we're getting closer and closer to him, and one day, whether we die or whether we, or whether he comes back in our lifetime, we will stand in his presence, and every tear will be wiped away, and every wrong will be righted, there will be no injustice, the people of Philadelphia will be there, and they will have patiently endured, and we will have patiently endured, and this is the world that God has won us this is his plan for us this is life by his design so I want you to know that that's available and I want you to know that meditating on these things is going to help us as a community that we look forward to him coming and we invite that in and we just live to pursue his kingdom here today and just bring it closer and closer so the band can come back up Um, we're going to sing a little bit And there's just some very powerful lyrics uh, that we've already sang. Um, When we arrive on eternity's shore, where death is just a memory and tears are no more, we'll enter in as the wedding bells ring, your bride will come together and we'll sing. You're beautiful. It's all about Jesus. And we should bank on the fact that he is coming back, where death is just a memory and tears are no more. We're going to be there. We're going to be there. And we have to live like we're going to be there. Let me close this in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this time together. Lord, I thank you for the songs and your word. Lord, I ask that you would, mu- that you would move all these truths from our minds to our hearts, God, that you would help us to meditate on the future that you have won us, Lord, that when things are hard, that when things are difficult, just like for the people of Philadelphia, Lord, that we will remember that you have promised us a future that no one can take away, Lord. That's faith. We cling to the promises that you've given us, God. Help us to do that every moment of every day. Just change our minds, God. Change our thinking. We don't want to be the same, Lord. We trust you.